Jerry Ratcliffe again with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Lorraine Maserol is Professor of Criminology in the School of Social Science at Australia's University of Queensland and one of the world's leading experimental criminologists. We discuss her career in criminology and police and crime prevention partnerships. Find out more in this episode at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Hi. Two quick things before we start. First, the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing is having their annual conference in Washington, D.C. on June 1st and 2nd. It's a great meeting and I highly recommend it. Second, this episode was recorded before the true extent of the Australian bushfire season was known. I lived in Australia for four very happy years and have subsequently visited many times. And my thoughts are with all of my friends there and everyone affected by the current devastation. Lorraine Maserol is an experimental criminologist and a professor of criminology in the School of Social Science at Australia's University of Queensland. She's been an Australian Research Council Laureate Fellow, a Chief Investigator with the ARC Centre of Excellence for Children and Families over the Life Course, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Experimental Criminology, and a past chair of the Emeritus Society of Criminology's Division of Experimental Criminology. Among her many prestigious accomplishments is being an elected Fellow of the American Society of Criminology, and the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2016 ASC Division of Policing Distinguished Scholar Award, the Joan McCord Award in 2013, and the ASC Division of International Criminology Frieda Adler Distinguished Scholar Award, and that's a mouthful that took me three takes to get. Her grants and scholarship have covered a wealth of policy-relevant topics, such as third-party policing, police engagement with high-risk people in disadvantaged communities, community regulation, problem-oriented policing, police technology, civil remedies, street-level drug enforcement, and policing public housing sites. We chatted at the American Society of Criminology meeting in San Francisco, covering how she got into criminology, how police can manage and keep partnerships with outside agencies fresh by writing in a sunset clause, and the surprising situation where police in Australia are helping school teachers understand procedural justice. I learned that dyad partnerships aren't a Welsh thing and sneak in a quick joke about drop bears. If you're ever a tourist in Australia, watch out for the drop bears. I don't need to be copied in. was late. I was having coffee. Come on, (laughs) give me a break. I was getting coffee. I think at ASC there should be a rule that you're allowed to be late and your excuse for being late is I was getting coffee because the lines in these places are unbelievable. Well, I had a lovely cup of coffee with Betsy and her friend that she went to graduate school with, Bessie Stanko. Mm-hmm. You know Bessie, yeah, yeah, yeah. Met pol- She used yeah. to be with the Met Police. About, we're talking about her being here at ASC in the mid-70s where there was 400 members. Wow. Yeah. Changed now? 5,000 members. I can't imagine I what it was like back then. 400 members... I mean, that feels feels tiny. And 12 women. No, seriously? Yep. So she started the um, Division of Women in Criminology, yeah. It's changed a lot now. It seems to be, feels like it's almost, certainly the younger crowd seems to be majority women now. Well, that's because all the women want to go into solving the world's problems, Jerry. Solving the world's problems. So what are all the men going to do? I don't know. Create them. Create the problems and the women solve the problems, is that right? That's about right, isn't it? (laughs) All right, shoot. 
Well, I don't know, where do you want to start? How did you end up being a criminologist and one of the leading criminologists in the world? I wanted to be a police officer. Did you, you know this story, don't you, Jerry? <laughs> yes, but that's why we're recording a podcast, because right. other people okay. don't, don't know, know this story. story this, is, this is how it works. Right, okay, all right, okay, <laughs> off we go. So when I was 14, I was fascinated with reading about murders and all sorts of stuff in the newspapers, and our school counsellor... That wasn't was, dark and scary. That wasn't dark and scary. And our school counsellor, who was probably the PE teacher, you know, and who knew nothing about careers guidance, they uh, threw us all books when we were in about grade 10 or 11 and said, pick your career. (laughs) Good grief. Pick your career. So we were in the library and I got to A, accounting. I went, oh, I can't be an accountant, you know. Flipped over a few pages, get to B's banker. Oh, I don't think I could be a banker. And got to see, and there's criminologist. So I thought, I oh, thought that's what to, I'll I thought you were about to say copper. Copper, no, criminologist. So I went to this counsellor who really wasn't a counsellor, he was the PE teacher, and he says to me, uh, oh, the only way for you to be a criminologist is to join the police. So in those days, you join the police after your 17th birthday. So the day after my 17th birthday, I grabbed my girlfriend and said, come on, we're going to join the police together because we're fit and we're going to do the obstacle courses and we're going to be, you know, marching and doing all this fantastic fitness stuff. That was really what I thought it was all about. Maybe how many times in my policing career I had to climb a rope. Useful skill. Very, very useful skill, Jerry. In fact, I'm so keen to do the obstacle course that our Embedded Police Fellow has organised for me to do a special edition of the uh, obstacle course. The Lorraine Masroll obstacle course. Because I never got to do it. So what ended up happening was that my girlfriend got put in one room, I got put in the other. They asked me a couple of questions about my politics, which was a little bit sort of left of uh, centre in those days. So they put me under the height restriction and I was five foot three and three quarters and they threw me out. So I didn't even get to the first step. So washed up at 17. Bloody hell. Your girlfriend went on to become the commissioner. She went went on to become a police officer and still is a police officer with the South Australian police these days. So then I went to do an economics degree. You know, so accounting, banking, criminology. You just went back to the beginning of the book, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And then so I did an economics degree and then discovered sociology of deviance. So then I did that subject and ended up working for the Office of Crime Statistics and that's uh, kind of where it started. But there was another part to the story as to how I actually came to the States. David Bailey and Ron Clark came over as visiting scholars to the old National Police Research Unit in Australia. And both of them invited me to come over and do my PhD in the US. Did you have to pay your passage to America on a tramp steamer or something like that? No, nothing like that. But the only reason why I came to Rutgers was that Ron Clark promised me that he'd give me an office where I would be able to see the Statue of Liberty. He said, you know, if you come to Rutgers, you're right near New York and you're right near the Statue of Liberty. And so I was sold. And so my 13th floor office in the Centre for Crime Prevention Studies, you know, at four o'clock in the morning when you're running all that data and everything, and you can see the very, very top of the flame of the Statue of Liberty. That was my office for three years. Technically could see a little bit of the Statue of Liberty. And that was the thing that that brought Brought me to Rutgers. And did it make it worth it? Oh, it was an interesting journey. Well, my first job was with David Weisberg. I've heard of him. You've heard of David. <laughs> Have you podcasted David Weisberg? <laughs> no, not yet. No. 
David. I'll, I'll, I'll get round to capturing David at some point. He's everywhere. So yes. You get yeah. to hear from David a lot. But it's not so often we get you to this side of the planet. So it's great to have a chance to yeah. talk to you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I didn't invite you all the way here to America. I just grabbed the fact that you're at the conference. <laughs> yeah, Come on, yeah. don't, don't give me that yeah, much credit. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so you worked with David. Yes, David called me up. David on... opens every door possible. Yes, that's right. So David called me up, I think it was about, it could have even been the 1st of April on April Fool's Day. <laughs> There's something in that, right? There's something in that. <laughs> there was a and message. Said, there was a message. I should have realised that. And he says to me, um, you can be my project manager if you arrive in two weeks or if you arrive in three months, which was when I was due to arrive, you can just work as a, an assistant. Which one do you want? And so I said, well, I'll come and manage the project. And I uh, said, well, you have to be here in two weeks. Of course, I didn't have a visa. I didn't have any kind of arrangements in place to, to get over there. But for David, that's really just not really a, uh, a, a matter. You just get there, right? <laughs> I think I was flying out on the Monday morning and my visa arrived. Oh, you didn't have to swim the Rio Grande or anything? No, no, okay. nothing like that. You know, just uh, catch about 10 million planes and spend 50 hours in the air or something. So my visa arrived on the Friday afternoon at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and um, my flight was leaving at 6 o'clock or something the next morning. So Blimey, there you go. Landed in Newark, New Jersey, right at the height of the crack cocaine epidemic. It's an undiscovered paradise. Undiscovered paradise. Oh, well, in those days, it was really a very, very dangerous city with drug markets on every other corner and, yeah, a really good place to... Uh, we have to get through your PhD study. somehow, right? Well, I didn't do my PhD on the Jersey City project, so that was another story. So Dennis Rosenbaum actually had been working with the Oakland police and he got this grant to look at their beat health program and then he actually unfortunately had a heart attack and asked David to do this grant for him and David was off busy doing other stuff and we were running the drug markets David project. David's stuff. David's stuff and I was running the drug markets project in Jersey City for David and this was an opportunity to do something completely separate from David. So I did my PhD on the Oakland Beat Health Program. A good decision and for any graduate students listening to run your own project and not be part of a senior scholars project for your PhD. Well, I always think it's nice to have a couple of different things running at the same time. I can't sit down and work on one project the whole day. No. My brain turns to jelly kind of mid-afternoon, so it's nice to transition to something else, like a separate a side project that you're interested in that you can just work on. Well, I think also there's lots of synergies, and if you're working on different projects, you see things from different perspectives. It broadens um, that experience. I'm a big fan of crime in place and you know I've done a lot of research on understanding the dynamics of crime in place but the thing that really always bothered me about that is people are in places and so you've still got these um, dynamics of why people are, are in in these places and what you can do in terms of working with the people, um, not just focusing on the, the place dynamic. Was that to some degree how you started getting into things like third party policing? Yeah, it was because what, what bothered me was, and what I saw about the police working on places, there's, you know, the, the problem solving that was very place centric that could really change some of the long-term dynamics there. But hotspots policing and those sorts of things, they'd come in and do a crackdown or they do a very, shallow problem solving and within 
you know, a couple of months, the problems were back the same way. And or even less time than that sometimes. Sometimes much quicker, you know, what is it, 15 days or what have you, and the, the problems are back, and sometimes they're back even stronger. And we actually had a captain of the Jersey City Police, Frank Gajewski, make the analogy to grapevines, you know, that you, you might cut off the grapes, but the vines still still strong. And That's a good one. Yeah, and in Australia, actually, we have native trees that... You know, if you trim them and you trim them a lot, they actually grow much stronger and much, much more bushy. And I always they're able, they're much better able to support drop bears then. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I always felt that, that that kind of high pressure on the places was always a tactic that actually strengthened the markets. And a lot of the research that looks at networks, networks in organised crime, networks in drug dealing, and those sorts of things. It's really interesting that if you actually take out the central character in a, in a network, it actually strengthens the network because a decentralised network is actually uh, less susceptible to, to disruption. So it kind of got me very interested in how do you sustain long-term gains? And I really think that the police can't sustain long-term crime control in, in places or with people without, without the partnerships and partnerships in policing is really what creates the capacity for police to sustain those gains over time. So tell me about third-party policing and then how that transitions into your work on partnerships. So in Oakland, uh, at the time, Police Captain Bob Crawford, he was working with a range of different city inspectors, the rodent control, health and safety, various city inspectors and he started working with them as a team and so they came together as a specialised multi-agency response team and you know it wasn't really about having health inspectors coming into the crack houses and or looking at the the fire codes and what was the place up to code or what have you it was really a way for the police to be able to get some control over the over the the place through um, working with the other agencies. When I worked in Philadelphia, Chuck Ramsey, when he was police commissioner, used to say he loved it when he could get other branches of government to spend their money to solve his That's problems. Right. That's exactly the, the principle. And the trick there was to, it wasn't really a trick, but it was really to have their goals be uh, consistent with the police goals. Right, because so often of these things I've seen them break down because it just collapses into tribalism or feudalism. Each agency is yeah. looking to protect their turf and not really wanting to put themselves out to help another agency of government. That's right. But unless it's genuinely focused on mutual goals, it's going to fail. So they might do it as a favour to the police for a short period of time, They might build the partnership and see it as something that is worthwhile doing for a short period of time. But if the goals don't become mutually beneficial, the partnership will collapse. So your man in Oakland, Bob Crawford, was he successful? He was incredibly successful. So did it rely on him? That's the tricky part with this. I mean, how did he manage to get traction where other people have tried that kind of stuff and it's just dissolved into a mess of individual yeah. agency fighting as much as anything yeah. else. So first of all, he was very charismatic. He was charismatic, he was dynamic, he was convincing, he was persuasive. And he was able to convince the other agencies that the that it was a mutually beneficial goals that they were working towards. 
so over time, as with a lot of these partnerships, the routinization of the intervention was really eroding for the for the partnership because it became too structured and too routinized. So the multi-agency response teams, if you had to get four or five different inspectors and the police all going to do an inspection at the same time, the coordination of that became very difficult. So unless you're able to create a momentum that sits in behind it, that's not dependent just on one individual, right. you have yeah, a champion. The champion is bought in, it's their idea, but then they get promoted because they've done something, well, I mean, I would like to say they get promoted, but promotion systems in policing tend not to be that meritorious. Yeah, that's right. And I don't actually even know that he was ever promoted beyond a sergeant. But I do think that the alternative, the top-down sort of imposed partnerships are equally fraught because they're better in terms of the negotiations at the interagency level and then they don't become ad hoc. They don't become Bob Crawford calling up his mate that's in you know, fire and saying, hey, we've got this inspection, can you come along? And so it's very much a transaction around personalities. Okay, so you've got a bottom-up approach, yep. which is personality-driven. It's a sergeant calling up his mate in yep. licensing inspection. It's a sergeant calling up his mate at a relatively low level in the fire department to all kind of get together and hit a house that's been causing problems for the police department. Yep. But that's reliant on informal networks and personalities. Correct. Or you've got the top-down approach, which is formalized and it's memorandums of understanding and agreements of strategic plans and all that kind of good stuff, which is better. Both have a limited life. It's interesting you say that they both have a limited life because I'm sure some people would argue that if you formalise these things, bring in structures and business processes and strategic plans, that's much more able to, to be sustainable because it becomes part of the organisational kind of mantra than the informal approach that relies on character and individual personalities. So, But you're still saying the top-down approach... No, I it think the, has the, a limited lifespan. Yeah, I do think it has a limited lifespan. I think that the way that those partnerships evolve over time become far too routinized. They lack insight, they lack innovation, that there's a lot of turnover, there's a lack of institutional memory. You know, problems move on and that partnership has run its course. And if they can get refreshed and they can change in shape, that's where you can get some sustainability. So they, they just, everything needs to have, I think that they need a sunset clause. Those really? Stuff. I was yeah, going to say, do. Some, the things, do we need to build in a time when this Absolutely. dies? Absolutely. I think so. And I think that it, if you've built it in so that you can say it might run for a year or two years, that seems to be the extent of the, the partnership. And then I think it's, a, it's important to really stop it and to think about, is this meeting both of our agency demands? You might have a change of leadership. The change of leadership has some different priorities. If it doesn't meet those new priorities or you know the form of the, the, the crimes changing, the drug market are changing, billing, it just needs to, to change. And I think that some partnerships just aren't meant for longevity and some are. So Welcome to my personal life. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I, I just think that to have successful partnerships, I think you do need the charisma meeting the the, the top down. Are we still talking crime or are we now into marriage guidance counselling? <laughs> you certainly don't want more partnerships than one at a time, Jerry. <laughs> you can edit that out. <laughs>
you play by your rules and I'll play, play by, by mine. mine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So there's a couple of other dimensions, I think. One of the other components of third-party policing is having some legislation that sits in behind the partner. Okay. And what that legislation is, is you know quite different and, and variable. If it's health and safety legislation, if it's... Um, is, it, is it existing legislation? Existing or is it, legis- is it legislation that's created to support the partnership? No, it's existing... Because that's a big lift. Yeah, no, it's definitely not new legislation. It's existing legislation. And one of the big projects that we've been working on for the last seven or eight years is around the truancy legislation. So in Australia, there's legislation through the Department of Education that requires a school-aged child to attend school and the parent is actually held responsible and they can be prosecuted if their child doesn't attend school. As with a lot of these ordinances, regulations, administrative laws, they get applied in a very ad hoc fashion. So partnerships that have a partner with some legislative requirements seem to be more successful than those partnerships where the entity doesn't have any kind of legislative responsibility that could be used and harnessed for crime control purposes. So one of the things I think I've always been uh, railed against is committees that are unnecessarily large for no apparent purpose. Correct. You know, I always think that as a committee grows, its capacity to make decisions is inversely proportional to its size. Yes. And you get the lowest common denominator response. Yeah. After a while, it just becomes a massive room full of people who are just defending their own little fiefdoms. So does that mean then taking that idea with what you're just saying is that if police are looking to do this, they should look for partners who actually have some legislative tools they can wield so they, yes. that, they actually bring us yeah. a, a decent stick to the party yeah. and what yes that's right and what i've also and I, this might sound very and they can bring some carrots but if they bring a stick that really helps well you need you need to incentivize as well as have the the stick and i've been a proponent of dyad partnerships i think multi-agency partnerships become very, very complicated. You know, the smart teams were multi-agency, but there was only... And that was in Oakland, the smart teams. That was teams. in Oakland, and, but that was only really three or four agencies and they had very specific roles. Dyad teams? The dyads are where you've just got the police partnering with one other entity. The nature of the relationships and the terms of engagement become very clear. They're, they're really, really crystal clear as to what the problem that they're, they're working on what the legislation is that they're activating, the people that they're working with. And for the police, it becomes, okay, we've got this problem, we've got this partner, and we use this approach. Now, that completely goes against the whole problem-solving principle of having a huge amount of flexibility to work on the nature of the problem. And I understand that. But you still see there are benefits in it. I see there's a lot of benefits because I think that one of the, the... issues that police that are working you know at the grassroots level they struggle with with having enough time to look holistically at the problem they struggle with and we end up with shallow problem solving exactly and i think that the need to engage with a whole range of different entities becomes there's a lot of transaction cost in that so they it takes a long time to build the rapport to build the the trust between the partners whereas a, a dyad partnership where the the police are building that relationship with one other partner, the building of the trust and building a working relationship with them, 
the, the time that they spend building that, they can actually then capitalise on. Do you have specific some examples of this? Yes, in the Ability School Engagement Partnership Program that we've been running, that's a partnership just between the police and the schools. It's using very, very specific legislation um, around the, the truancy laws where the parents are held responsible. The police that are recruited into the program, they're not recruited full-time, they're just regular beat officers, but they've uh, responded to an expression of interest that they're interested in participating in this program and the schools that they're working with and the, the um, teachers that come into the, the ASEP conference, uh, the Ability School Engagement Pro Partnership Program conference. That's a, bit um, of a build, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, call it ASEP. They start to get to know the school representatives. So, so in, a, in a way it sounds like it's got the necessary formal components from the top down to give it top cover. Yes. And to bring that to kind of formal arrangements. But it sounds like you've also got people working on the ground who are using informal relationships. Yes, oh, this yeah. is this hybrid model. So it takes into account the on-the-ground formulation of relationships between the two entities, but it's got structure and it's got support from, from the top, which creates a sustainable model. It's not something that the police have to justify over and over that of their in terms of their engagement it doesn't require the schools now it has the top down not just from the police but from the department of education as well so it requires that level of dual top down now you imagine a multi-agency partnership and you're trying to get five agencies all to agree to something we could be sitting here for oh. 10 years, you would grow a very long beard. You know, I'd be a very old woman. So this is where the dyad partnerships, I think, have some traction. I mean, there's a, there's a tendency in some cities and some places to want to build these big coalitions oh, see, because they, the they, they kind of think we have more people involved, it'll definitely improve yes. things. But yeah. that, that's disastrous. Disaster. It's absolute disaster and we've got we've got that going on in Queensland where I, where I live and very well meaning but they spend half their time agreeing to their terms of reference and you know the capacity to get anything done is extraordinarily difficult and I'm not saying that negotiating these partnerships between two entities is easy. But it's, it's got to be better than doing it between a dozen. It's absolutely better than And doing you don't it. water down any effects either. You don't have to pander to any agencies just to keep them involved That's even though right. they don't contribute very much. That's right. The other really big factor that sits in behind here is we've talked a lot about police legitimacy and all the training that sits in behind police legitimacy. What we have found is that the way that the schools talk to the parents, the way that the schools talk to the kids is so procedurally unjust, it's not funny. So the way that the police engaging with the young people and with the parents is and has much better results. And what we're finding is that the schools are actually learning from the police, which, you know, who would have thought? Yeah, that kind of goes against the, the existing kind of ethos and belief. That's right. So we started doing a lot of training with the police around teaching the principles of procedural justice and how they how they bring that into the ASEC conferences. We're now doing it with this in the school districts. Now, tell me, when you talk about procedural justice, how do you explain that? Within the context of the ASEP conferences, it's about conveying dignity and respect 
being neutral in their decision making, giving some voice, I mean, some voice for the young people, some voice for the, for the parents, communicating the um, legislative responsibilities of the parents and what the consequences are. You know, you're going to be fined $1,000 if your child doesn't go to school. You know, that's a teaching moment, but if it's done in a way that is not conveying what the motivation is that sits in behind why your children, why it's better for your child to go to school, and if that's not conveyed in a fair way, you get a backfire effect. So what we found was that the schools were horrible. The teachers were absolutely horrible in the way that they would convey this legislation. So in what way? Because this surprises me about teachers, because yeah. they're supposed to be the ones that are experts at talking to kids. They are supposed to be, but when we started to do our role playing, and be, this is going back several years ago now, the teachers were much more authoritarian. They were much more dictatorial about, you know, you haven't got your kid to school and, you know, this is all your fault and really, really not good communication. Sometimes the kids weren't going to school because if they got to school 10 minutes late and the uh, teacher railed the, up against them and, and shamed them in front of their class, you know, they're walking in and making smart-ass comments about why the child's late, not understanding some of the difficulties that some of these kids are coming Crappy out of. Crappy parents and stuff. Well, really difficult, you know, families, really, really difficult home situations. So changing the, the dialogue of the, the schools as to how they communicated their own legislation has been a major part of building this, um, this partnership. The voice component, I think, is really interesting because having seen more and more students coming through the universities, we do seem to be having an almost generational effect of kids who are now much more aware of the much bigger world, and that's possibly down to social media and the internet, and less confident about their place within it. You know, I think that the capacity for the child to communicate with what they see as authority figures where they're, they're treated in a respectful way, then, you know, you get a much better understanding and a better outcome. And, you know, we've shown that in the pilot, we're now upscaling that trial to a thousand kids in, you know, to look at some of the variability across different types of groups of kids. And how are you exploring this in an experimental way? We've got three big school districts randomly allocating a thousand kids to experimental control condition. We've got the police across the three school districts. It's actually a, a, a cluster randomised control trial where the schools are actually randomly allocated into experimental control condition for lots of operational as well as it, it meets the statistical power test. and. From an operational point of view, it's you know it's, it's complicated. Yeah. It's complicated to do it to have some kids in the school getting the experimental treatment, others not. So yeah. hmm. that sounds great. When do you think you're going to have results? Oh, about ten years time. No. So we're <laughs> well, just welcome to academia. Yeah, welcome to academia. So the negotiations across the schools and the police have taken about nine months. And if it had been a multi-agency partnership, it would have probably taken, you know, five Terrifying, years. Terrifying, yes. So we're just starting recruitment By the time now. you'd have got there, everybody had forgotten what you were doing in the first right. place. Yeah, that's right. So we should have all of the, the kids recruited by the end of 2020, so within a year. And yet you still think that these programs should have a sunset clause? 
I do. I think that they need refreshing, they need rethinking. I think that they, if you're going to upscale it, even if you're going to upscale it across the whole state or across the whole, in Australia we have data 4 million people and 10 different school districts. So, you know, do you upscale it across the whole of the state? I, I think it needs really careful thinking about how you negotiate it. The, the partnership and make sure that there's there's a sunset clause. I do think two years, two or three years is about right. Well, organisations can evolve over that period they of time as well. significantly, yeah. And what else is going on in Queensland then? What else are you working on? We're working on a lot of child exploitation. Uh, Dad in the word research on that, yeah. Yeah, child exploit the transmission of child exploitation material. We've got a randomised controlled trial where we're randomly allocating a new risk assessment tool. It's actually a decision support tool for how a triage staff manage the massive increase in child exploitation material referrals coming into the uh, Australian Federal Police. What's been driving that? Oh, well, technology's really driven the massive increase. I mean, uh, six years ago, they used to get uh, 3,000 referrals a, a year coming in. Now they're 18,000 a year referrals. I mean, it's exponential. So, you know, of course that puts a huge amount of pressure on the triage team and uh, the tool's not really appropriate. The forms of, of offending's really changed a lot over that period of time, so the tool's really out of date. So we've got that going on. Uh, we've got a whole range of systematic reviews on countering violent extremism different interventions so yeah fun well you've got lots going on i should let you get back to it lorraine thank you very much indeed great thank you jerry and hope everyone finds that interesting you've been listening to episode 19 of reducing crime recorded in san francisco in november 2019 other episodes look at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places New episodes announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Be safe and best of luck.